Stop it! Don't open that door! Listener, it's great to have you here. The implication, of course, being that I'm glad you're not somewhere else, uh, because I hate it when you bring joy to other people. I want you to be here, and I want everyone who knows you and loves you to be very upset that they're not around you. I'm, I'm evil like that. I'm like an evil robot. Um, Dr. Wiley, if you're listening, I think we've got your robot for Mega Man 11, your, uh, your, your social event stealing, social event stealing man. Or woman, I guess. Or woman. Uh, there, there was only like three female robots, right? In Make, the Mega Man series, I think. Uh, and one of them was a mermaid, which seems a little sexist. But then I guess even assigning a sex to a robot is probably in some way, <laughs> you know, it's indicative of the creator. So, and also, uh, it's Mega Man, I guess. So this is the, <laughs> the entire thing is, in, is, is rife with uh, sexism. But that's how it is. Triggered. Uh Thank you. I'm glad you're here still, listener. I really am. <laughs> and uh, this is this is episode 12 of the Masters of Unlocking podcast. I am co-host A, Caleb J. Ross, and with me is co-host B, VG Collectaholic. I will leave it up to you as to whether or not you want to give out your actual true real name. You do a lot of freaky stuff uh, 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 you know, in your personal life that you use your real name assigned to. I think you're a furry, uh, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm, uh, remember mm-hmm, correctly, mm-hmm. implying that I was there as well, if I'm remembering <laughs> it. Uh, so <laughs> welcome, uh, co-host VG Collectaholic, to this episode 12. Are we going to pump our, our furry po- podcast that we do on the side? Gosh, I'm so glad you said podcast after that, because when I heard pump our furry, <laughs> I, I was thinking this can go in a lot of different directions. Either one I'm totally cool with, just so we're all aware. Uh, we're all on board. Uh, yeah, it is uh, Masters of Unflocking. It's a it's a it's an avian based uh, furry pot. You know, I think birds get they don't get enough credit in the in the furry culture, right? They're called furries, which implies that you need fur. But you know what? It's really more of an animal thing. It's more about coming into your own and 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 being what you really feel like you are on the inside, uninhibited, if you will. So feathers are welcome. Uh, uh, gross, like like scaly skin. That's probably welcome too. Um, what else? What else? Uh, if you're a cow that's rolled around in manure for a while, you're half fur, half turd. That's cool too. Yeah. Birds and snakes are people too. That is the saying in the furry. I have a I have one of their challenge coins that they gave to me <laughs> through a through a subtle handshake upon my indoctrination indoctr- to the culture. So I hope we have listeners still. <laughs> this <laughs> this is a video game podcast. In case you're not aware, in case it's your first time here, and uh, you'd be surprised to know it's the only video game post- podcast that that is in existence ever. Um, we established that a few episodes ago, and it still holds true today. This is sort of like in a this... Gaffigan skit. What is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, he said the voice again. <laughs> Are they going to talk about Furbies the entire hour? <laughs> I didn't come here for weather jokes. Ah, <laughs> uh, I like Gaffigan. I always will. <laughs> Um, so in this episode, we're going to be talking, this is the very first episode of the new year. So with that being said, we're going to talk about our gaming goals for 2018. And I love the idea that there's gaming goals because it really (laughs) reduces the impact of the new year's resolution. They're supposed to be about changing your life for the better. And we're like, now let's take a subset of our life, which is gaming 
and build a goal around that that is not that is probably something we would do anyway um, or something that even goes into our increasingly sedentary lifestyle, uh, perhaps even contributes to what we'll talk a little bit about here on this podcast, a gaming disorder. The World Health Organization released some gaming disorder stuff. So we'll talk about that. I'm all for setting realistic goals. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. 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 What is a goal if not something that you do all the time anyway, right? Right. Uh, yeah. Um, we are also going to talk about flog getting detailed. That's that's golf and deleted backwards, uh, respectively there. Uh, BJ Blaskovitz from the Wolfenstein franchise. Uh, we find out that the J stands for Jewish, apparently. Uh, we're going to talk about Platinum Games also getting detailed. And uh, the Connect Adapter also getting detailed. A lot of things getting detailed in this podcast. We're going to be talking about gaming disorders. Uh, I alluded that to that earlier. And we're also going to talk about Mad Cats coming back, which I think in honor of our gaming disorders podcast or topic, uh, they're not Mad Cats. They are uh, maybe possibly socially uh, socially um, um, uh, difficult cats. Uh, so uh, I, I think Matt... <laughs> mentally incapacitated cats, perhaps. So that's what we're going to talk about on this wonderful podcast. <laughs> oh, goodness. That was a good intro. We, uh, you know what? We're getting good Put at that this. on the board. Yeah. <laughs> this is really a milestone here. <laughs> Let's start off talking, uh, as we always do, about our playlists. This is one of my favorite parts because I get to hear about all the cool stuff that you're playing and that you own that I will never play or own. So we're going to start <laughs> with you here, Scott. Uh, what are you playing? And also, what have you picked up? We'll just ram those two topics together into one. What are you playing and what have you picked up? Okay. Well, I finally finished South Park Fractured But Whole. It's the first game that I finished in 2018 because I finished it on New Year's Day morning. And immediately went into uh, Middle Earth Shadows of War after that. Um, mm. Big Tolkien fan, and I really enjoyed Middle Earth Shadows of Mordor, the first game in the series. And Middle Earth Shadows of War is basically just a, a direct sequel, picks right up where the first game left off, drops you in as the same main character, and continues the story um, right there. And the story is sort of in parallel alongside the the events of the the Lord of the Rings. That's awesome. I've heard a lot of really good things. I haven't played any of those games. Um, but I was watching a video recently, probably on outside Xbox or PlayStation access, probably one of those two channels. And they mentioned something about this game that I thought was pretty unique. So maybe you have a take on it already. And that's, um, you can, you know, once you gather, once you, uh, bring, um, your, you tame people or you beat people or whatever, and you bring them into your fold, that's this game, right? Where you can sort of build your army or is that the second one? They both kind of work that way where you, your character is sort of half human, half wraith. So mm -hmm. the eventually the character builds like in once you get into Act Two of this game, you have the ability to dominate orcs and build out your army, and um, you basically capture citadels and and stock them with orcs. That's right. That's right. And you can, I don't know what the term is, but you can sort of berate the orcs and bring them down levels so that the next time you encounter them, they are uh, less powerful than they were in the previous. Isn't that it? You yeah. have choices of ways that you can handle it. I think that's yep. just a really cool idea that you can essentially make fun of them and they'll be weaker the next well, time you meet them. <laughs> and it works the opposite way too. If they if they defeat you, they level up and they gain rank and, and difficulty. So then the next time you go beat them, they're your nemesis. And then it, obviously you get better loot for beating them the next time and, and it's a more difficult battle. 
I love it. I love it. Yeah, it's a cool mechanic. Just gives you more of a connection to kind of who you're fighting and it it sort of improves. The the game itself improves on everything that the original game did sort of lacklusterly. Um the la- the first game had a quite a bit of repetitiveness to it, which was a, a big um drawback for it. A lot of it, the first game got a lot of really good reviews as well and I had a lot of fun with it, but it it did get a little repetitive and so far I'm probably I would say 15-ish hours into Shadows of War and not feeling that repetitiveness at all yet. Oh, good. Good, good, good. Yeah. What uh, What about you? What have you been playing? I have been playing Skyrim. Shut up. God. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I've been playing. Um, I, uh, I have I a feeling pod- that I'm going to be asking you, so what have you been playing <laughs> till about July? And you're going to be like, you know, I've been doing some fun side quests on uh, that's this new Skyrim game I found. Thanks for making my voice nasally. Gosh, <laughs> it's really played into the stereotype there. I, uh, it, I'm i still having fun with it, which is good. I'm about 40 hours into it. Um, and uh, you're probably right. I probably will continue to talk about it. But I think this is going to be help. This is going to help me truly stick to my... 2018 goal of buying fewer games because I have found myself not even really turning to look at games that are coming out because I'm not really looking for something new to play. I mean, I I, I am going to be playing this for quite some time. I also started watching in tandem to my playthrough um, the Let's Play of a channel I've talked about in the past, Many a True Nerd, um, probably my favorite YouTube channel, but he has a Skyrim. It's 87 hours long so far, I think. Each episode's an hour long. Um, and I've been watching that in tandem so it's kind of interesting because I'll play a little bit and then I'll sort of watch the next episode in his series. And it seems strange because for the most part, our two paths are kind of aligning, even though neither one of us are really going just for the story mode. Um, we're also doing side quests, but in a weird way, we kind of are doing the same side quests. So it's kind of cool. Um, there's always that temptation to watch ahead in his videos, but I don't want to necessarily be spoiled by some of the things that, or be prepared for some of the things that I'm going to come across. So it's been kind of a fun way. It's almost like I'm playing it with someone, but we're having different experiences and he's just a very, very good, uh, he, he's the exact kind of let's player that all let's players should be. Um, he does it right. So yeah, that's Skyrim. That's it. So you, how far in, out of your 40 hours, how much would you say have been done actually doing the main storyline quest? You know, it's, it's hard to say. I would, I would say probably 15 or so of those hours, probably a little less than half. Um, And I don't know how far I am in the game, to be honest, because uh, I, I don't really, I have no concept of how, of the beats in the story, right? I can guess that I'm at a point that's important because I'm in a new world or I'm doing new things that really, they're not repetitive. But at the same time, I have no real ability to stay. So if someone were to play from the beginning to the end doing just the story mode, I honestly don't even know how many hours that would be. I think on how long to beat if we go, if I go to that site, it varies so much because this is one of those games that it's really hard to say. And how long to beat is good because it does tell you when you, when you put in a time for your beating that you beat the game on, you can tell the system, uh, I beat this game story mode only. I beat this game story mode with some side quests, or I beat this game basically completed where I did all of the side quests. Okay. So there's three different tiers, which is good. At the same time, though, this is one of those games that I can't imagine someone beating the story mode without doing any side quests. So right. I kind of don't believe that uh, that tier. But, um, but yeah, it, I, I'm, I'm still having a great deal of fun with it. Nice. That's yeah, good to yeah. hear. I'm glad I'm glad you're enjoying it, knowing that you're more of the 
dystopian sort of setting guy and and because I, I really did enjoy Skyrim probably more so than than Fallout at, just because I'm I'm a Dungeons and Dragons geek so mm-hmm. I like the, the the high fantasy setting exactly and that's I think I talked about it in the last episode and that's one of the things that really that pushed me away from Skyrim for so long is that I don't like the high fantasy setting uh, but playing Skyrim I've realized that what I love about Fallout isn't just the aesthetics, which it which it definitely is the aesthetics that I love, but it's not the only thing. It, it makes me realize how good the gameplay and how good the world building really is in a Bethesda open world RPG. Like I will, I will, I would probably have always played any Bethesda open world RPG from this point moving forward, um, or from the first time I played Fallout Three moving forward. I probably would have done that anyway. But Skyrim solidifies that I will do that no matter what the environment, no matter what it is. I will absolutely play any game that they release that's in that format. So I really am hoping that they go back and release some of the re-release some of the other Elder Scrolls games on you know one of the newer engines because I think it would be fun to go back and play through some of the the other games in the series. I start I stumbled upon the Elder Scrolls series with Oblivion. I didn't. I never played. I mean, I'd, I. Had had Morrowind back in in the original Xbox, but never actually played it. Um, and then I think the the other two before that were PC only, and I had never even heard of it before that point. So, mm-hmm. um, and I think I lasted maybe maybe five hours in Oblivion playing it on the Xbox 360, and never went back to it. So, um, mm. and I've heard that people like the the Oblivion storyline quite well, and and Morrowind as well. So. It'd be fun to go back and play those on a on an upgraded engine. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what have you picked up? Um, I will spoil it right away by saying I picked up nothing, so please take up the time here. <laughs> <laughs> well, in I a good chunk of the time since our last record, I spent back home in Wisconsin visiting family for the holidays, so my pickups are relatively light. Uh, I did pick up a few things while I was in Wisconsin. I went to a couple of Goodwill stores back in, in my hometown and picked up just some random crap that I found. I will say, though, that compared to the Goodwills out here, which are sort of a, a, a jumbled, utter disaster, the Goodwill <laughs> that I went to in Hudson, Wisconsin, is probably the most immaculately kept Goodwill I've ever seen in my life. Like, everything was all ordered, and they had this section of all games, and in all of the Goodwills out here, I have to, like, dig through movies and books and and cassette tapes to find games it's just sort of jumbled in with everything but this was i had i felt like i had to buy something because it was just <laughs> so well done so i picked up a couple of playstation one games Fanta, uh bomberman fantasy race which is actually one that i had been wanting to find um tends to go for about i would say anywhere between 20 and 40 bucks on on ebay i think i paid 2.99 for it and then I also picked up Tetris Plus on PlayStation 1, which is uh, one of the Tetrises that you can play two-player kind of a versus mode on, which is kind of fun for a party game. And then I picked up Tennis Masters 2003, which was simply a, a, an OG Xbox game that I didn't have in my collection, and they happened to have it uh, complete and uh, in pretty good shape. So for two bucks, I figured I'd stuff it into my luggage. Nice. And I... Proceeded down the path toward my complete PlayStation 1 long box collection, picking up Darkstalkers, um, which is sort of a vampire-themed one-on-one fighter, and um, 
got a couple of, got a good deal on a lot of uh portable games so some original couple of original xbox games and a gba game got uh teenage mutant ninja turtles fall of the foot clan for the original game boy the new chess master for the original game boy and breath of fire 2 for the game boy advance which was the only breath of fire game that i didn't have so that's a fun little subset to complete and then just because it was cheap and it was it's kind of an oddity i picked up a complete collection of uh the mattel hyperscan which is pretty widely regarded uh as one of the worst video game consoles of all time (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think i've i think i've watched an avg an episode on that and it definitely looked the part to be terrible yeah it's uh everything the the entire set is factory sealed and i think that's exactly the way it will stay (laughs) Um, I don't ever actually have designs on wanting to play it. I just thought it was kind of a unique oddity. And I think something that could be pretty rare and and relatively collectible down the road. I think they only sold something like, uh, like 50,000, I mean, 15,000 units uh, of the console itself. Um, And there's only uh, five games that ever actually made it to market for the, the console. So was that ever even on your radar as a collector, like as something that you would even think to get? As, nope. Ever? <laughs> nope, sure wasn't. It was just something that I stumbled across and was like, well, what in the heck is this thing? <laughs> uh, I'd never even heard of it before. And then after looking into it and seeing that it was relatively scarce and um, even relatively few you know, sold item auctions or live auctions on eBay, I figured, well... F- what the heck? I, I've spent $50 on stupider shit in my lifetime. So, <laughs> Yeah, I remember there being a uh, an X-Men game, um, and I think, that's prob- I think that was one of the only, like, playable games. Like, the rest of them were atrocious, even though the X-Men game was also atrocious. Yeah, but and they, the X-Men game I mean. is actually the pack-in game for the system. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So, I think awesome. uh, I, I did, did a little bit of reading on it after I bought it, and I, I think... Within something like three months after it was launched, it was already being clearanced out for like $9 for the console. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Pretty solid. It seems, I don't know, man, I think you should open it just for the novelty. (laughs) I mean, I guess you being a complete inbox collector, it it would make sense to not open it. But that's one of those weird things that I really would have to experience how terrible. (laughs) Wow. Well, nice, nice. Very cool. Well, what do you say we dive right into our 2018 gaming goals all right let's do it talk to me about yours i'm looking at our notes list here and uh you have a goals list here that would rival most people's life like life goals so uh <laughs> you, you're highly ambitious uh and i'm i'm praying for you uh thank you i think a couple of them are going to require some sheer dumb luck i think uh so the first the first arm of my goal is to finish four complete game sets and a couple of them I am already I've I've gotten a good chunk of them out of the way. The first one is the 3DO and I've been sitting on a I've been sitting on needing two different games for the 3DO set for probably about 3 years now and those two games are two of the rarer games for the system, Woody Woodpecker Volume 2 and Dino Park Tycoon. Dino Park Tycoon is far and away the rarest game in the system. I've actually only seen a complete in-box version once. 
Um, and that's a, a fellow completionist collector that, that picked that up and, and has it out in California. Uh, so I'm hoping that I will at least have a chance to acquire those things sometime this year. And that will complete my 3DO set. The other three are the Sega Master System, um, which Mighty Q-Dog got me interested in and uh, I've been chatting with him quite a bit about just the, the oddities and, and different variants and instruction manual variants and things like that. Uh, I'm about halfway through the set right now, have most of the heavy hitters out of the way, like Buster Douglas Boxing and so forth. Uh, I'm, I have fifty ga- exactly 50 games to go to complete that set. The Atari 7800, which I think there's only something like 56 games or something like that for the the Atari 7800 set. And then the Atari Lynx, which I think there's 30 games. And the Lynx, I actually only have like three games to start with. So that'll be basically building an entire collection over the span of the year. Nice. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of, uh, lot of specific oddball system game game hunting in my future for 2018 and then i do want to also work towards completing some filling in some of the gaps in my u.s game console collection i have pretty much i have all of the mainstream systems since the the nes era um so really all i'm looking for is some of the older stuff at this point generation one and generation two type systems and then a couple of oddities so the older stuff that i'm looking for would be atari pong from like 73 i think magnavox odyssey one and two and a ColecoVision, which one that i haven't ever had in my collection and the atari 5200 and then the more recent oddball type uh systems that I'm, i want to add are a cdi because i'm a, a masochist <laughs> and i specifically am looking for one of two versions the cdi had a bunch of different versions made by uh both phillips and magnavox and so i'm specifically have been looking for either a phillips 740 which is like the the highest tech version of the cdi that was released um consumer model of the cdi it's really more of a a full media center type one um and high, really high quality components and so forth or the magnavox 450 which is the one that really looks most like a game console it's got like the top loader and looks almost like a top loading 3do it's interesting to me that the uh the com- a company like you know Philips or Magnavox it just it's it's very interesting to remember how unimportant branding was almost like they would take a technology a technology company would say yeah here's our technology put it in whatever case you want we don't really care um and now it's kind of the opposite where the technology companies want to own not only the technology but the but the marketing of it and the manufacturing of it which is the norm now and it's 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 so obvious in hindsight to be like why would you just sort of not care how your technology is used and let it be used in all these different variations and things like that yeah absolutely i mean even so far as the name you know the the Philips 740 what the mm-hmm. hell kind of a name is that for a product you know it's mm-hmm. like it's like you just had an engineer design a product and then they said well hey engineers you guys can market this thing too <laughs> exactly cuz <'cause laughs> that's your skill set 
<laughs> yeah, it, it, and even if you look at the boxes for these things, the Magnic Box 450 is a little bit of an outlier because the box for that sort of looks like you would expect a game console box to look like. But if you look at the box for pretty much all the other CDI systems, they look more like, like you're buying a car stereo system. It's sort of a, uh, a plain white or plain brown box with some black lettering on it that just says, like, Philips 740. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's something that's a little bit less fun to collect complete in box, but <laughs> whatever. Yeah, and and then the last console that I'm going for is uh, the U.S. version of the Apple Bandai Pippin. Nice, the boomerang controller yep. console, right? Yeah. Yep, yep. And the the U.S. one is the one that was. It's a. It looks exactly like the Japanese one, except it's black instead of white. And they only sold about fifteen thousand of them, so it's one of the more rare consoles around. Um, Rarity is about on par with the Panasonic Q, which had about the same print run. But the Pippin actually sells for quite a bit less if if you can find it. Nice, nice. Yeah, and then the other the other two. Goals that I have for 2018 are really gameplay related because, you know, after all, this is a gaming podcast, not just a hoarding podcast. <laughs> That's our third podcast, of course, is uh, yes, of course, hoarding and, and finding, you know, cats underneath boxes and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth where we actually uh, hoard furry costumes. Uh -huh, uh -huh, so uh -huh. that's a yep. fun one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the first gaming goal will be to play through the Bioshock trilogy. My secret shame is that I've never actually played through the Bioshock trilogy and that needs to change. Have you start have you tried them at all? I have. I've played the first game probably I've gotten about 10 hours ish in or so and have never played any of the others. <laughs> Yeah, I may join you on this on this cause. Maybe we can give each other updates on this podcast as we do that because I am in the same boat. I've tried I played the fourth the first one uh twice. I've started the first one and both times I got about 10 hours or so into it and then just lost absolutely all interest and and I wasn't even pulled away by different games. I just simply I actively wanted to find a different game because I was so bored with it. And I don't know why. I, I genuinely don't know why. You know, I'm, I'm kind of the same way. I, it wasn't that I didn't like it and I liked the ambiance and I've, I wasn't really bored with it. I don't think I just didn't ever have the desire to go back and be like, oh yeah, I'm going to pop that in again. Yeah. So, and then I've heard the second one is very polarizing. So uh, that doesn't really bode well, but I have heard <laughs> the third one is, is, probably the best one of the series i've heard that from a lot of friends anyway so we'll see yeah we should uh almost we could do a video game book club video club thing <laughs> that's a crazy hashtag <laughs> oh my god i like it i like uh -huh, it uh-huh yeah we're, we're really we're really knocking our we're really starting out 2018 with a bang here folks Absolutely. What, yeah. what, uh, surely that's not your only, uh, video game playing goal. No, no. I also want to do, and I don't know that this is even happening, um, because I think people are burned out on it from 2017, <laughs> but I didn't do it in 2017. So I want to do the cartridge clubs alphabet challenge where you go through and finish one game starting with each letter of the alphabet in 2018. A lot of folks, including, the incomparable Caleb J. Ross. 
what com- who completed this in 2017 and i think it sounds it, like a lot of fun it was a lot of fun and i will I, i'm almost ashamed to admit it but it really was a truly like sen- it, it, there was a strong sense of accomplishment with it i mean as as dumb as it is to say i spent my time playing 26 games um which i played and completed more than that in 2017 so i'm even lazier than that term implies but the fact that uh i did that doesn't seem like it would be too much of an accomplishment but it, it really kind of was it was an interesting it was a good feeling i guess and um i do believe that the 2018 one is happening um i know there is a dedicated forum or a dedicated thread for it over at the cartridgeclub.org forum oh there uh, is now good yeah there has been one started um so it should be going on. I don't see why it won't. Um, I uh, I I have sort of. I'm not going to participate again just because I've already done it, and it was hard enough to find games that started with X and Z and stuff that I actually wanted to play. Um, so that would be, I think, even more difficult this time. Um, however, I, I I was on the Nintendo Age forums recently, and they do something every year that I've introduced to the Cartridge Club in hopes that other people would maybe uh, be driven to do it as well. And they have everyone in the community complete the uh collectively complete so not individually but collectively they complete all of the games for a particular system i think this year they're doing all of the uh all game boy games the original game boy games um so you know there's hundreds of those and then there's even a score system set up so each game you you beat you get a certain score if you're the first one to beat it then your, your score is a little bit higher than than otherwise um, certain games that, that have a higher difficulty get different scores and things like that. And so they they really take it to sort of a crazy, uh, uh, interesting, but crazy uh, ex- extreme. I think with the Cartridge Club, what I'm what I'm thinking about maybe doing is, is cut it, curbing that back a little bit and not necessarily... If we choose a console and try to beat all of the games on that console, there's going to be a lot of, I think, leeway in terms of the rules and restrictions. Like, for example, I'm a fan of emulators and save states. I say go for it, uh, that sort of thing. So there might be two different uh, two different uh, uh, challenges this year. So anyone listening who's not uh, doesn't know the Cartridge Club, please go over there and join. It's a great community. Everyone is very non toxic, and that's what I love about it. Everybody comes together, and it's a whole lot of fun. So if those interest you, please head over to the forums and check it out. It's cartridgeclub.org forward slash forum. I think singular. Um, yep. Maybe yep. With an singular. No. Nope. There singular. you go. Um, so yeah, check it out uh, and contribute, and it'll be a lot of fun. I hope. Yeah, should be a good time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, my other goal, uh, if the Cartridge Club console completion challenge, that's hashtag CCCCCCC, uh, <laughs> if that is going on. Yes, yes, uh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> as one of my, uh, as one of my uh, uh, goals, if in fact it does end up being a goal, um, as well as the Bioshock Trilogy challenge goal. Um, I'm also going to have a dedicated goal, and I alluded to this earlier up front, that I do truly want to purchase fewer games this year. Um, and I'm thinking long games like Skyrim may help me do that. So that's my other my other goal. It's I've seen quite a few people on Twitter talking about how they want to try and scale back their game purchasing this year, too. I wonder if the fact that there were so many great games released in 2017, if people are just sort of burned out on game buying a little bit. Um, I, think I think so. I want that the the litany of great games in seventeen plus just the the prices on retro gaming. I think people are getting sort of double whammied. I think uh, triple whammied, perhaps, because not only the litany of great gaming, the pricing, but also the need to remove yourself from the realities of the world that happened, took place in two thousand seventeen. I think is probably a big part of it. So people are just wanting to sort of 
uh, come back into gaming. Um, and of co- and of so, course, you're talking about the fact that Firefly still has not come back. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that mm-hmm. show that mm-hmm. I just heard about uh, just now, two seconds mm-hmm. ago, is not yep. coming back. I'm very disappointed mm-hmm. about that. Yep. Yep. That's what I figured. That's what I figured. <laughs> All right, let's let's talk about some current events, shall we? Uh, this is the time in the podcast where I'm uh, I'm going to improvise a uh, it, 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 I'm going to inter- improvise a musical segue. Are you ready? <clears throat> current events. All right. Current nice, <laughs> nice. I'm totally sampling that and putting that in every single episode. <laughs> you got to include the fart sound at the end. Which, yeah. I, was it real or was it fake? We'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> I have a very strange shaped microphone that picks up on all sorts of sounds from all sorts of holes on my body. Um, you, you may you may hear some sounds from other holes uh, somehow. I don't know how that'll work. Um, all right. First uh, current event. Uh, this one, I'll, get, I'll let you get started. How about that? Okay. So this is just one that... Is kind of sad, I think. We talked about this in a, an earlier episode that the Nintendo Switch had the, the little hidden tribute to Satoru Iwata, the, the flog golf game hidden into it. And the latest Switch operating system patch, version 4.0.0, removed it for whatever reason. And so I guess uh, Nintendo's just saying, yeah, you know what, Satoru, he, he's dead. He's not coming back. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't look at it as I, I kind of like that it was a a moment in time. It was sort of a a temporary honoring of a lineage. Um, you know, if in fact this entire uh, if in t- fact it being playable is even true, because there's still some stipulation, uh, some conjecture as to whether or not being playable is true. The existence of it, I believe, and I I am comfortable um, believing that 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 the ROM or the actual code existed. Whether or not it's playable, though, I know there's been some videos and stuff, but it's really been difficult for people to confirm whether or not it's actually playable. Consider, I, you know, there's just so few videos out there that I'm a little bit, uh, I'm a little bit uh, skeptical. Um, I know that it requires some very specific maneuvering and specific times that you would do it and all this kind of stuff. But still, I feel a little bit like there's there's been what 14 million switches or something sold this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that we would have more than two videos about that, but. I, I know uh, there's another great channel. I'm, I feel like I'm plugging a lot of different channels here, but the, none of these channels need my plugging, but Wolf Den is a really good one. Um, and he had a video where he reached out to the community and he said, hey, if you got a Switch for Christmas, there's potentially a good chance that you got a version that's one of the earlier versions that may have this and that the firmware hasn't been updated. Um, so if you're watching this and you got a Switch for Christmas and you haven't opened it up yet or anything, please try to do this thing uh this this try to open the flog game this golf game and he he's sort of trying to aggregate a bunch of other additional experiences with this and i haven't followed back up with his videos i don't know if he's received any submissions or anything like that but um if he does i'll probably talk about it here on the podcast because i think it's a really interesting idea for him to get a little bit more further proof and validation but even if that proof or validation doesn't exist i'm still i still think it's just a very cool way to honor uh, satoru iwata without without it becoming a a big deal. I think the humility of the gesture is really nice. The fact that it existed existed for a short time and it's sort of forgotten is. Uh, I don't know anything about Japanese culture, but I feel like there's a humility with it that that probably honors that culture a little bit more than say would be the case if it were an American developer doing the same thing. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So, um, on to uh, the next new segment. <laughs> that's like that's my best segment <laughs> ever. 
<laughs> um, so uh, there's an uh, Wolfenstein too is hero. Uh, there was an article in um, there was an article in a Polygon uh, that uh, talked a little bit about uh, B.J. Blazkowicz's Jewish heritage. So B.J. Blazkowicz, the the um, main uh, protagonist, the only protagonist of uh, of at least traditional Wolfenstein games. There's other protagonists in the more current games, but the main protagonist, I should leave it at that, um, of the Wolfenstein games, there's always been understanding the developers have admitted that B.J. Blazkowicz is Jewish, but it's never been specifically referenced in the game or anything like that until Wolfenstein 2. Um, which I think is really cool, um, and it I think adds some credence to not credence it it adds some uh, rationale to maybe um, his or it adds some rationale to his motivation uh, for what he does in these games. Obviously, the game centers around murdering and killing Nazis, and if you are half Jewish, then there stands to reason that you would have a very personal reason for eradicating all of the Nazis. But I, I bring it up on this podcast uh, for a couple of reasons. One. Um, the, I think I encourage everyone to go read the article. I think the author of the article, I think, reaches for a few straws too many um, in terms of trying to make connections and trying to justify BJ's um, motivations based on his Jewish heritage. Uh, I think it's it's as simple as he has a Jewish mom, and that's one aspect that that drives him to kill Nazis. But the the author tries to bring in a lot more into that. So I'd be interested to hear any listeners' feedback on um, what they think of the article. So I bring it up for that reason, but then I also bring it up because I'm interested to know from you, Scott, did, do you think this changes how we perceive his uh, his journey? Um, uh, Wolfenstein Two is such a story. Wolfenstein uh, One, Two, and uh, are they're both such um, rich. Uh, storytelling experiences that um, I'm curious how you feel about knowing that maybe part of his motivation or a great deal of his motivation deals with his Jewish connection and not necessarily with the fact that Nazis are bad and they should be punished. doesn't matter what your heritage is. Yeah. Um, And and I think too, like just as I was playing through the first game with, with the last name Blaskowitz, which mm -hmm. conjures up sort of an Eastern European it, at least to me, it, it sounds very Eastern European, which whether he's Jewish or not, like Eastern Europe was pretty, pretty well ravaged by Hitler as well in terms of the internment yeah. camps and things like that. It wasn't just it wasn't just Jews that were being rounded up. It was pretty much anybody that didn't fit his, you know, his crazy whack job ideal. So I thought I kind of thought that that was part of the the theme outright already, whether he was Jewish or not. He was sort of one of the 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 people that would have fit the what the Nazis would have looked down upon I guess is yeah the that, way that's it, a really good point that's probably why the developers uh, said that they always thought of him as Jewish anyway so you know for they probably didn't really think of um, I'm guessing Machine Games who developed Wolfenstein two and one um, the reboots didn't probably think of this inclusion of the Jewish mother as a big deal because his last name is Blaskovitz, so obviously he has some sort of connection. Um, what's interesting though is his dad is not Jewish and I don't know that his his dad is very much a Southern American Texan guy um, so there's some it's, it's sort of I don't know there's some interesting things there I mean I don't know if his dad's last name was Blaskovitz or if he took over took his mom's last name simply because he wanted to honor her in some way. I don't know if it got into that. If it did, I was probably too busy trying to skip the cutscene so I could kill some more Nazis. <laughs> but, 
Um, yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, uh, we, we love, uh, getting rid of Nazis. I think we can, we can both agree on that. We love, let's say delisting Nazis. Um, Mm -hmm. any other Mm -hmm. delisting that's been happening, um, recently? It's, uh, sort of become an annual rite of passage that as the year comes to a close, it's time for some platinum games titles to start disappearing from online marketplaces, which is, it's tied into the licensing, I'm sure, but it's just a reminder that, uh, you know, digital games are are temporary, right? The Platinum Games, the same thing happened at the end of 2016 as the calendar rolled to 2017. There was their um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutants in Manhattan had uh, became unavailable for sale it was it put out of print physically and also disappeared from uh, online marketplaces you can find a couple of used copies of it here or there but i would suggest if if you're interested in playing mutants in manhattan um, pick it up and now the same thing has happened with transformers devastation which we actually discussed in episode four um, as a game that I would was playing through and actually likened the controls very much to Nier Automata um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and didn't realize that it was a platinum game until I actually started playing Nier and was like, God, this, this is reminds me a lot of Transformers Devastation. And I did some looking and was like, oh, yeah, they're both platinum games. Um, but Transformers Devastation is now being is now going out of print and has been now removed from uh, online marketplaces, as well as uh, Legend of Korra. And actually, Legend of Korra is only available digitally. So basically, that game's just not going to be available anymore, I guess. Which hmm. kind of sucks that you know the when you have a licensed game, and for so long, licensed games were just trash and shovelware for the most part but i think that's changed uh a little bit as in the last few years there's been a lot more games that are worth playing that just happen to have uh, a a license attached to them whether it's transformers or tmnt or or you know whatever um but I think it's just a little reminder that nothing nothing sticks around forever. It might be a nice topic for a future episode too, maybe to ruminate and try to think about why licensed games have gotten better. You know? Yeah. Uh, it's it's interesting. So yeah. Cool. Yeah. But that's not the only thing that's gone away. <laughs> There's more? More. <laughs> so back in episode seven, again, uh, we talked about Microsoft killing off the Kinect. And officially putting the nail in the coffin, ceasing distribution as they uh, essentially sold off the the technology to Apple. Uh, and now just another step in, in this um, disavowing of Connect going forward, Microsoft just announced that they are also discontinuing the actual adapter required for the Connect to even be hooked up to the Xbox One S and the Xbox One X, as well as a PC. Uh, the original Xbox One, for those who don't know, has a, a special dedicated port that plug that the Connect uh, plugs into. It's not USB. It's not uh, a, a sort of. It's a proprietary plug type, and this adapter. Uh, that plug, that connector is no longer included on the Xbox One S or the Xbox One X. 
so they Microsoft developed an adapter that changes it from that proprietary port to just a standard USB port for the connection. And those they had done a program for a while where they were giving it away to anyone who had an original Xbox and a Connect and upgraded to an Xbox One S. Uh, but about a week ago, they actually announced that they were discontinuing that program. And then a couple of days after that announcement, they confirmed that they actually indeed discontinued the whole adapter. So the crazy thing is after I saw that these were being discontinued, I went and looked to just see if I could grab one just to have in the collection and have on hand if I ever wanted to hook up the Connect to my Xbox One X. And the prices on these things have absolutely skyrocketed. So the the retail price on them was I think $39.99 and you could get a they were sold if you didn't get one through the free program they were $39.99 you get it through Microsoft you get it through a bunch of different retailers well it's it's sold out everywhere there was not a single retailer that I could find it at the Microsoft store says it's no longer available and I went to Amazon and eBay just to see what the the, the third party market is and they're selling for over $300 gross crazy I, I there there's no way that i would actually ever even want to play a connect game but i certainly wouldn't want to pay a 300 dollars premium in order to be able to experience terrible terrible motion control <laughs> god yeah that sucks it, it, it's interesting just how far how much of a a 180 xbox has made on on the whole connect thing you know when they first released the xbox one it was you couldn't buy you couldn't buy the system without it. It came with it. It was part of their ecosystem. It was part of how they developed the Xbox One. It had all of the gesture controls and a, a litany of of Connect type games and and uh, how far they've come since then. Mm-hmm. You know, they, mm-hmm. even with the Xbox One X release, they re released some games that had been Connect games that were really only you could only play them with connect and they re-released them like uh, disneyland adventures rush the disney pixar adventure and zoo tycoon uh they really re-released all three of those that now have um actual standard real video gaming controls built into them so yeah that's the best part of the story right there is that they people are not that anyone would necessarily want to play these games because i'm sure they're terrible but uh, they have the ability to if they want to. And from just a video game preservation standpoint, I mean, it, it's nice that they are being put in a way that other people can enjoy. So I like yeah, that. Yeah, completely agree. It's uh, yeah, not everything is a sickness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ooh, mm-hmm. I like it. Mm-hmm. But one thing that happens to be a sickness, or at least the uh, seed has been planted for there to be further discussions about the severity of sicknesses associated with video games, uh, that's that's a big story. The World Health Organization um, is are they're going to recognize gaming disorder as a mental health condition in 2018. I say gaming because the draft of this uh, proposal is is in the beta version right now. But in the forthcoming 11th uh, ICD, the International Classification of Diseases, the World Health Organization is including gaming disorder. Quote in its list of mental health conditions, uh, the disorder is characterized by quote impaired control with, uh, uh, I'm not going to say end quote, uh, the increasing priority given to gaming and escalation despite negative consequences such as activity that is sufficiently, that sufficiently, 
Man, this is hard to read. Okay. <clears throat> I think I have a uh, gaming disorder right now because all of my gaming is impairing my ability to normally <laughs> read stuff. Uh, basically, it does a lot of stuff that prevents you from doing your normal day-to-day activity. Um, so it's really uh, – there, there's a lot of – the article um, that, that I read about it, it's really good. It's, it's a CNN article too, which I think is important to point out simply because it shows that gaming is becoming more and more mainstream as we – as gamers know, but it's becoming mainstream enough that – um, when there is ties to uh, other types of newsworthy events like the World Health Organization and things like that, uh, that there's uh, m- major media outlets that are reporting on it, which I think is kind of cool. So the idea um, is, is that essentially uh, they're recognizing gaming. They call it gaming disorder, uh, that uh, it's basically when you um, uh, when you game so much that it impairs your normal day-to-day activity that's when it becomes pop a, a consequence. That's when it becomes consequential. Um, I th- really the the I want to talk a little bit about maybe what the impact is going to be. Um, is this going to usher in more restrictions on gaming, or is it going to usher in more support for the impact of gaming? So maybe make games take being be, have them being taken more seriously to some degree. But I also think it's worth cautioning and saying that this isn't uh, universally praised by everyone in the mental health world or in uh just in in the world of of medical uh medicine um because there is some there's a little bit for some people there's too much leniency and it's too flexible a definition for others it's not going far enough the other thing to keep in mind too is this really doesn't change things in terms of the medical profession um yet what it does is it really sets up a context, a shared lexicon for people to invest more resources into studying the effects of this. So um, no one has come forth and saying what's the cure for uh, gaming disorder. It's simply allowing people to define it. And once it's defined, again, money can come in. There can be more um, research put toward it, which I think is a good thing. I think anytime there's an activity, even if it's an activity that I love a lot, is enough to warrant further study regarding its impacts on day-to-day life, negative impacts on day-to-day life. I'm in favor of that. So, you know, After reading through this article, um, I definitely think, I, I agree that I think gaming is something that people can get addicted to. I mean, I, I've, I've, I've definitely gone through points where my gaming, especially when I was playing MMOs, was definitely getting in the way of, you know, real life. Um but I think that I, there was a quote in there from uh, a University of Florida, uh, Stetson University in Florida, Professor Chris Ferguson, who's a professor of psychology, who sort of poo-pooed the idea and said, look, it, quote, there are people out there who overdo video games, but people overdo lots of stuff. So why just games? Why not have a general mm-hmm. behavior addiction category that can apply to anything that people overdo? And I think that's... I think he I really agree with with his point there. I, I think that addictive personalities are just that they th- people can get addicted to whatever gives them a dopamine rush, you know, whatever mm-hmm. whatever sort of thing you're enjoying whether it's video games, whether it's eating, w- sex, I think anything that can can trigger that uh little little dopamine button in your brain to go crazy, I think um people will always have a tendency to succumb to addiction to. Um, My worry is that categorizing it as a video game disorder really opens up the industry to needless legislation and needless government intervention. 
I tend to agree with the the saying that the nine scariest words in English are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> yeah, I, those, those are good points. I think one of the important points, too, to take away from this is that um, – the, I think it might have been the same the same person actually who who quoted this, but I don't want to misquote. So let me go. Um, here we go. No, it's a Douglas Gentile. Um, speaking of Jewish, I guess <laughs> um, is a professor professor of psychology at Iowa State University. Who um, this is where I got the 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 idea about this is going to help open up conversation about um, gaming disorders and other disorders and the best way to define them and things like that. But he made a good point that he says. Um, what's what's really important is that we don't necessarily try to cure the addiction itself. We don't want the addiction addiction and and naming the addiction to mask the true underlying cause of the addiction. Um, and as long as there's that separation there, I think that's going to be helpful. Maybe perhaps as sort of a counterpoint to to your statement, uh, Scott. Maybe there's a there's a the reason why it's so specific is because. Um, does that do you think allow um uh allow doctors to maybe uh, uh i guess have a little bit more um have a little bit more leeway or a little be be able to be a little bit more persuasive when they maybe they have a patient who is addicted addicted to video games and they need to find out the base reason for being addicted to video games and by saying it's specifically video games that they're addicted to and not other things it allows them to really focus in on maybe what it could be that's causing the addiction if it's a generalized addiction or a generalized behavior change but they don't necessarily have the ability to pinpoint what it is that's actually that they're addicted to then it may make the actual defining the, the cause of that addiction a little bit more difficult this is all hyper I, i'm obviously not a doctor so this is just totally uh, guessing here, but I guess I'm trying to find a reason other than simple animosity toward the gaming industry as to why it might be so specific. And the article didn't really get into that. You know, it's not like the the uh, the uh, ICD is is authored by um, Parents Against Video Games or something like that. I mean, it's right. it's, it's, it's authored by, by what should be a a a, a non partisan group, um, but. You know, yeah, I don't I don't think it's necessarily an attack on video games by any means. I think I th- I just think that there are going to be a lot of different causes for why people can get addicted to a video game. Yeah, whether it's whether it's they're addicted to the the rush that they get when they progress, whether it's a level or a new piece of gear or you know it, it's sort of like there's been studies that that's why people check their phones constantly is because they're they're they become so addicted to the instant gratification of the next social media mention, the next like, the next um, just that next little bit of achievement that that it's actually the achievement the 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 thought of achieving is what they're really addicted to and i think that translates a lot to video games and or or i think there's also another aspect that can lead to video game addiction and that's just that i think may be quite prevalent just among the the video game crowd and that's just an escapism you know I, Mm -hmm. i think i think a lot of people uh, and I don't, I don't want to. Obviously, I've been a gamer my entire life, so I'm not trying to denigrate gamers. Um, but I, I think that a, there's a definite segment of the gaming population that wants to try to achieve 
an escape from who they are in real life. And mm-hmm. I mean, and we have that in all forms of entertainment, right? Whether it's uh, watching a binge, watching a TV series and, and identifying with characters or going in and watching movies and, and getting an escape from the real world and being transported to a place that's less crazy, less painful, less, um, less real. Uh, I think all of that can, can come into play. And I, I would hope that, just classifying something as a quote unquote video game disorder doesn't make that become the cause rather than the effect. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Good point. You know what I think causes video game disorders? Awesome video games. That's mm-hmm. the number one culprit. So I think what mm-hmm. we need to do is make all video games terrible. Um, that way, if someone does get evicted, addicted to video games, there's a much more reasonable explanation in terms of mental impairment like why would you play that that does that makes no sense let's figure that out you know yeah i think that's what we gotta do i think that's great i mean that's basically why bud light exists right because if you're (laughs) if you're just ending up drinking nothing but bud light you clearly got a problem you know i was reading uh so i read a lot and uh there's an author named mary roach who writes really good funny nonfiction books but they're nonfiction about various sciences she wrote a great book called stiff which talks about um, the subtitle is the, I think the, uh, the hidden lives of human cadavers or something like that. So it talks about what happens when people donate their body to science or, or just give their, you know, what happens to cadavers. So she does that kind of stuff. Uh, she wrote a book called Grunt, which is about the military. Um, and she wrote a book called Gulp, which is about the human digestive system and all the crazy quirks there. And one of the things she, she interviewed someone who is, uh, I don't know her title, but it's someone who is, has a very refined taste. Um, her taste buds are just really, really great, and she's sort of a food scientist, I guess, but she essentially gets paid for just having a very sophisticated palate, um, and they were out drinking, and this this uh, person with a f- sophisticated palate ended up ordering Bud Budweiser, I think it was, um, and Mary Roach, as a rational person would do, questioned that choice. Uh, if you're If you know taste so well and you have such a refined taste, why would you order that? And she said, actually, because Budweiser is one of the best tasting beers for what it's supposed to do. Like it, 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 it consistently delivers exactly what it's supposed to deliver. There's no, um, there's no, uh, you know, there's no potential for it to not be anything but what it is. And all of the ingredients are doing exactly what they're supposed to do. So if you're after an intentionally terrible thing, that's what you go for, I guess. And so it, it was just very interesting to me that people could even think of that as a delicious, delicious uh, thing. It would kill me if I drank it, I think. Yeah, good good on Budweiser for consistently delivering utter shite. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm yeah. Mm-hmm. Speaking but, of a company that... Oh, wait, uh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I forgot. I was going to say, speaking of a company that used that is known for delivering utter shite but you're right you had a better segue no no actually frankly that that one was good too i was gonna say speaking of cadavers and things that come back from the dead that works (laughs) (laughs) some mad cats the peripheral company is coming back they they had declared bankruptcy and shut down operations back in march of of 2017 and had laid off most of their employees the previous year in 2016. And essentially what what sunk Mad Cats, they'd been around for like 30 years making peripherals. They started off, they made really sort of the Budweiser of peripherals. It was just <laughs> really crappy third-party controllers and steering wheels and things like that. Um, but they had really sort of turned over a new identity in the last, I would say, 
five years or so um, by making really high end uh, arcade fight sticks. Um, things that were used in tournament play for Tekken and Mortal Kombat. And really the, a lot of them used you know, really high end arcade specific components made by companies like Sanwa and, and those kind of companies that actually make arcade cabinet components and had really sort of transformed themselves into a, a pretty well-respected um, controller manufacturer. But they bet heavily on Rock Band 4 back in 2016 and made they not only made all the peripherals for rock band 4 but i believe they actually even published the game itself and it just didn't sell well and um basically bankrupted the company but uh it was just announced in december that mad cats is coming back it's a new company that's actually been made up of uh, a bunch of people from the original Mad Cats companies, and it's actually uh, from people that worked in the factories and make, making the stuff. So it's sort of, you can think of it as like an employee-owned new company kind of thing. Um, and they're actually going to be um, producing all, all new new third-party um, components or third-party uh, peripherals and have specifically said that they're going to come back and, and start building the, the arcade fight sticks again, which is, is pretty cool. Uh, and they said that they will be at uh, the Consumer Electronics Show here this this week in, in Vegas. And so nice. it's... Nice. Yeah, yeah. It's it's nice to have, have them back. I think uh, they, they definitely took a lot of well-deserved flack in the PS1 and earlier era and really ps2 and earlier but uh starting with the ps3 generation their their stuff was actually pretty solid Uh, yeah their their slogan if i remember correctly was uh mad cats the controller your little brother remembers (laughs) 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 do you have a neighbor you kind of like who's over for a few hours because their mom is at work mad cats they're getting a mad cats controller (laughs) for sure The left, the left arrow pad doesn't work, and the L2 <laughs> the, button doesn't work. But that's... The logo is so giant and in your face that you accidentally push it thinking it's a button. <laughs> yep, yep. That, you, you should check and just look at what the, the prices of some of their arcade fight sticks go for, especially after they went belly up. Some of the stuff after it got discontinued when they, they went bankrupt, the prices just shot through the roof. The, I mean, they weren't cheap to start with. A lot of them are 150 to $200 controllers to begin with, but the, the price on the secondary market for some of those is well over 500 bucks now. It's crazy. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. But, uh, you know, speaking of zombies and zombie controllers and zombie peripherals, you remember when CES mattered in the gaming industry? No. (laughs) (laughs) It has been a while. It has definitely been a while, which which is sad. You know, I'm probably showing my age, but I remember in junior high and high school reading through Electronic Gaming Monthly magazines and diehard game fan magazines and reading through all of the articles when CES would come around. And uh, during that period, CES would do two, uh, two conventions a year. They would do a winter one in January and then they would do a summer one in, I think either June or July. And it was always just a really great time for 
game announcements. It was uh, nowadays we've got E3 and we've got PlayStation Experience and the Microsoft's got their own. There's Paris Games Week and gaming news and electronics news in general just sort of comes out, uh, trickles out throughout the year. And back in the day, CES really was the, the one event that you could look forward to every year. And it would be just a, all of the companies, any company that dealt in electronics pretty much worldwide would be represented there. And a lot of just the not only iconic video game history was represented throughout the history of the consumer electronics show, but the history of of uh, really electronic media in general was debuted at CES. And so CES is, is happening this week, uh, starts January 9th and runs all week long in Las Vegas. I thought that it would be kind of a, a neat idea to just take our main event this this episode and go through look at the history of ces year to year and talk about some of the video game related announcements that were born out of the consumer electronics show i like it you know and it's kind of an interesting irony that as video games have become more ubiquitous more adult oriented and more widely accepted as a mainstay of home entertainment that their presence at CES has dwindled to near extinction. You know, it's it, it definitely wasn't always that way, as as we'll see here. CES started in it was actually started as a spinoff of the Chicago Music Show way back in 1967. So this is what this is the 51st year of CES coming up here. Um, yeah, it's pretty, pretty crazy to think about the, the Chicago music show was actually at the time back in 1967 was the world's largest electronic entertainment show itself. So then for it to sort of spin off and, and create CES, which would go on to the, the heights that it went on to is, is kind of interesting. And it started off, it was the, the first 1967 show was actually in New York city and it was going to be held biannually. So every two years and the 1967 and 1969 shows were both in New York City, and then it moved to Chicago. And in 1970, it flipped over to an annual show. So thereafter, from 1971 to 1977, they had annual shows in Chicago. And then starting in 1978, it moved to its present home in Las Vegas and has been there ever since. And I think this this history is really going to focus on the... The Winter Show, which is the main CES show for a period of time throughout CES's history, I think primarily through through the early 1980s and through up through the mid 1990s, there was actually two shows: the Winter Show and the Summer Show. Um, and we'll we'll touch on a couple of announcements from the Summer Show, but we're going to primarily focus on the Winter Show. Mm. Yeah, I'm and excited. If, if if anybody's interested, feel free to check out our website, mastersofunlocking.com, and we'll put up a bunch of uh, photos from the history of CES here in, in the show notes on our website. So uh, there's some really cool cool pictures that uh, will give you some glimpses of, of CESs of the past. So let's get started. Uh, 67, first show, 
we're going to gloss over that because nothing nothing really came out of that that, I, that we're interested in. The first thing that we want to mention is the 1970 CES. Philips introduces the VCR. Not really gaming, but there's going to be the CES in by nature of its electronic uh, entertainment um, sort of theme. It, you'll see that it all, the announcements of all of the major media types were were introduced at at CES. So just to give sort of a, a framing of the time period, we'll include each of the the major leaps in in media. So 1970, we have the VCR, the first ability for uh, consumers really to actually record uh, things from their their televisions, and it predates VHS. So this was actually like a uh, more of a traditional cassette looking. Um, tape media that it used but then 1974 again we're still predating video games here but the introduction of the laser disc which surprised me i didn't realize yeah. that the laser disc dates all the way back to 1974 i didn't think so either yeah that's incredible yeah it's hmm. pretty pretty astounding i actually learned too that uh, when i was doing some research for this episode that the laser disc actually the technology on it functions like a record where it's actually the, the, the data itself is imprinted right on the, the, the disc and there's no compression whatsoever. So that's why each side only holds about an hour worth of data because essentially the technology is record is it's just a record that's read like with a laser. Hmm. Yeah. I did not know that. No. Interesting. Yeah. Learn uh, learn something new here on Masters of Unlocking about useless old technology <laughs> every chance you get. <laughs> so now we turn the calendar from 1974 to 1975, and here's our first appearance of the video game at CES. And it's Atari showing off their home Pong console. Have you ever played Pong? I have. I've played, uh, aside from just the, your standard, uh, you know, clones and everything, modern day clones, things like that. Um, I was at the, uh, I went to the National Video Game Museum a couple of years ago, and they have a giant one. I, I've never played one of the original Pong home, co- the whether the, uh, the the Atari ones, or I think um, there were a few other, uh, like Sears had their own, like mm-hmm. all these department stores and stuff had their own. Um, so I've never played one of those, but I have played uh, a giant wall-sized one with huge, giant basketball-sized knobs. That was pretty fun at the uh, video game museum. That does sound fun. Is it fun. is it something that they have they built specifically for the video game museum, or is it actually a, an example of something that was uh, used by consumers? No, no, it was definitely um, if it was used by consumers, I would want to live in the house that this thing was built inside of because it's oh i see what you're saying it's an actually a a a larger example of what the consumer could buy smaller as like a store demo right 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 no it was it looks like it was built entirely just for uh the uh the the museum i think that's pretty cool yeah what about you 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 own oh now i noticed you said that one of your uh goals this year was to acquire the atari one of the atari pong consoles have do you have any of the other various incarnations of of consoles atari consoles i don't have a pong that's that's on my list i do have a pong clone i think i have a magnavox pong clone again like you mentioned there was all sorts of spin-offs and and clones made by every different manufacturer and different retailers um but I've only I've played a 
just like a, a mock version of it back in, in school. Uh, I think it was on the 2E, actually, back in like elementary school. But it, I don't even think it was Pong. It was like Apple's version of it. Hmm. Yeah, so it's something I've never played. Well, sad. maybe one day. Yeah, sad. I can, just, can really just hold out hope. <laughs> of course, it's amazing. I have to find a, a way to modify the thing so I can actually play it on a modern TV, I think. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but that was 1975. Atari introduces the Pong home console. And then just one year later in 1976... Atari announces the video computer system, the 2600. It was, it's kind of interesting, the history around the launching or the appearance of the Atari uh, VCS in the 1976 CES was they had actually, Atari was in a licensing battle with Magnavox over Magnavox, the Magnavox Odyssey and some licensing deals that Atari had done with Magnavox. And so the Atari VCS was actually ready for production and ready to roll two years earlier. So in 1974, but Atari was tied up in this licensing deal with Magnavox and they were basically prohibited from launching the Atari 2600. And so they just had to sit on the tech and sit on the tech and their licensing deal happened to expire weeks before CES. So they decided then to take the the VCS to CES and and use that as sort of their their coming out party in in January of 1976 and it would go to go on and be available at retailers later later that year. Hmm. Yeah. Another thing that was introduced in 1976 is finally we get to the VHS tape. And it stunned <laughs> me like again getting to just the relative history here that laserdisc predates vhs by two years <laughs> that's crazy it's shocking huh. yeah so we night that's 1976 we fast forward a couple of years to 1979 and we have more atari news because really atari is dominating the home console market at this point and 1979 atari introduces two of their 8-bit computers the atari 400 and the atari 800 and later in 1979, the Olsen family would introduce me to the world. <laughs> Boo. Yeah. Worst for... CES ever. <laughs> <laughs> it was the grossest CES yeah. ever, too. Yeah. It, it A was. lot of complaint cards filled out on yeah. that uh, showroom floor. A lot of return to sender cards. <laughs> 1980, finally a new challenger enters the ring of the home video game market as Mattel introduces the Intellivision in a an introductory consumer brochure. They actually wouldn't go to market with it for a year, but that was the very first appearance of it was the 1980 CES. Did you ever spend much time with either the 2600 or the Intellivision or ColecoVision, anything in that sort of second generation of gaming consoles? The only uh, the only familiarity I have with really any of them, at least back in during my childhood, was I I was um, acquaintances with a neighborhood kid who uh, he he was he had an Intellivision, and I went over to his house a few times to play the Intellivision, and this tells you how much I love video games because I went over to this kid's house to play the Intellivision, despite the fact that this kid was absolutely mentally unhinged from a medical perspective. 
uh, from a danger perspective. I I he I think he ended up lighting like his house on fire a few years later. Um, he he was dared to uh, when the teacher was out of the room in class once. He was dared to go under the teacher's desk, pull out his uh, penis, and start jerking off, and he did so. <laughs> of without course, he a, did. without hesitation. Wow. Uh, so I re- but however I do remember the Intellivision being pretty terrible at this time. I had an NES. Um, so it was definitely a step back, uh, but, uh, I remember it being pretty terrible, but I still went over there multiple times to play it. Um, because again, I love video games. I just don't understand where the connotation with, with video games and antisocial behavior ever came from. <laughs> That's right. I wish there was some sort of like, uh, you know, I, I, idea, I, ICD sort of description of the video <laughs> game that we could latch onto. <laughs> wow. so back to ces (laughs) yes please please take us back to ces back where it's where it's great all of the time as we've established during this this conversation (laughs) so that was 1980 the mattel introduced uh caleb j ross's traumatic childhood experience (laughs) oh no it wasn't dramatic it was fantastic yeah yeah yeah. no no it was a pivotal moment in my life That's what I meant. That's what I meant to say. 1981, the compact disc is introduced at CES. Man, again, I didn't realize it was that old. Right? I was thinking that, and then I started to think back and remember my childhood. And I remember one of my older cousins getting Michael Jackson's Thriller on compact disc. And it was like back when it was basically... Thriller had actually come out. So it was, you know, it was that like 1984, 86, something like that. And and she had it on CD. And I was like, what is this contraption? This doesn't <laughs> fit in my tape player. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This was uh, 1982. It looks like Thriller came out. Wow. So yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, that's also Other... the year that I came out of my mom's vagina. Hey, oh, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. That was a C-section. <laughs> oh boy we're really Speaking getting we're really getting a full glimpse of the caleb j ross childhood experience <laughs> here in this episode uh please please be my friend everyone <laughs> anyway oh boy <laughs> oh my god that's good stuff we're, we're recording a half hour later than normal and i think it shows <laughs> yeah yeah i was napping before we started this because i'm an old man uh-huh. As we established, you're two years older than I am. Uh-huh. I'm a young I'm a young buck. Yeah. You're an old buck. I am I am damn near on the wrong side of forty. Yeah, it's <laughs> coming coming quick here. I'm I'm approaching the top of the hill. And oh, then it's man. just all downhill. Embrace from it. There. Nah. It's embrace it. I can't wait till I'm like seventy. it's gonna be the greatest. You just want to be able to say inappropriate things in diners. Pretty much, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah, sounds about right. Instead of just on podcasts. <laughs> yeah. This is my old man practice. <laughs> Thank you for letting me try this out. <laughs> I think yeah. I'm going to be a good old man. <laughs> it's going to be it's going to be a great world. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> so 1982. Let's try this again. <laughs> <laughs> Not only did Caleb J. Ross arrive, but the Commodore 64 and the Vectrix arrive. They were announced at CES, and Atari announced its codename Video System X, 
which I think is like the earliest cool video game system code name that mm-hmm. that I've that I've seen. And the Video System X would go on to become the Atari 5200. I think they should have just released it as the Video System X. It seems every code name that has X in it, people want to maintain. The Nintendo yeah. DX, Video System X. I think uh, Video System X is, yes, probably the coolest code name until, of course, the Dolphin. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Everyone knows the Dolphin was the greatest code name ever. Yeah, yeah. One of my one of the guys that I work with uh, in my, my actual real job, I don't just, you know, as as good as this podcast is, I haven't, <laughs> we haven't made it career quite yet, but uh, one of the guys in my office his good childhood friend was actually one of the the lead developers on project dolphin which i just found out a couple of weeks ago oh that's awesome yeah that's awesome yeah so i just have to try to see if he has any swag that he can shoot my way oh yeah that'd be cool yeah do you ha- um you mentioned the vetrix do you own a vetrix i do i have a complete vetrix set i was i played that at the, at the national video game museum as well and i have to say i was incredibly impressed with that thing it was a damn like even by modern standards it was just a damn cool fun thing to play yeah it is aged really really well yeah i think a lot of it is just the fact that it's it's simple graphics i mean it like like 16-bit has aged well because the 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 graphics just sort of stand the test of time because there's nothing that looks dated about them. They're just mm-hmm. really well done, really well colored, really well animated. Um, and the Vectrix doesn't have anything that really... It, it could be a modern sort of... It, it almost looks Virtual Boy-ish, you know? When yeah, you're, yeah. Like, all the vector graphics, but... Um, yeah, it, I, I have a lot of fun and it's all, it's cool to just have something that's self-contained like that sitting on a shelf because every, whenever somebody walks into my game room that there's two things that always get asked about. One is the Vectrix and the other is the Virtual Boy. And it's Hmm. sort of the same thing that there, there's this, this self-contained thing set apart from everything else. And everybody's always like, what the hell are these things? (laughs) And you always have to make sure you show them in the right order. Let's look at the Virtual Boy first, okay? Then we'll get to the Vectrix. Then we'll actually play the Vectrix. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what What about the Commodore 64? Did you ever play C64? Nope, never did. Never it, did. Still haven't. Yeah, I haven't either. The The closest thing that I've come to it was in in my my mom was a librarian in the, in the library, the school library that she worked at. We there was it was a bunch of just Apple IIe's, and so we played a lot of those types of games on the Apple IIe. But never did play the Commodore sixty four. It's something that I'd love to pick up and and explore because um, it seems like a really cool early computer system. Yeah, I'm I'm very disappointed that the Apple IIe was never. <laughs> Goddamn. <laughs> Okay, let me start this over. You don't have to edit this because the joke is dumb. <clears throat> I am very upset that the that the Apple IIe was never followed up by Apple IIe. Um, it was I was okay I was trying to make a Banjo Kazooie IIe thing, um, and it said we got a stupid Apple uh, Kart Racer. So let's let's anyway. We got to get through this list, man. I'm sorry. I'm gonna shut my mouth right now. <laughs> <laughs> Frankly, the, the, the interjections are probably the most entertaining part of this list. Otherwise, it's don't just tell me, me that it's just me talking about dates and video game systems. And don't tell me that. Don't encourage <laughs> me. 
So that was 1982. A lot of great stuff. Caleb J. Ross, the Vectrix, mm-hmm. the C64. Really a classic year for production. Mm-hmm. Very true. Yeah. <laughs> then 1983 rolls around and Atari shows up at the CES and in tote has a launch lineup of over a hundred new VCS games. And I was reading one news article from that was covering the 1983 CES. And the news article said something along the lines of, you know, while stockholders may be down right now on Atari, uh, Atari showed up with over a hundred new games and we'd like to quote, uh, Samuel Clements or Mark Twain by, and when talking about Atari saying the rumors of my death are greatly exaggerated. <laughs> we think Atari will be around for a long, long time. And of course, within a year, the video game market had completely crashed and Atari <laughs> was essentially belly up. And what's funny is it was the overabundance of games that essentially contributed to that. So, yeah, they're like, no, there's no way my house is going to catch on fire because look at this collection of matches I have. (laughs) This is what burns. (laughs) Oh, I love it. Yeah. So I thought I thought that was kind of a, a, a fun article. 1984 obviously is sort of the low water mark technologically for video game uh, market. We're in the midst of the crash, and the only thing announced video game wise at the 1984 CES was the Amiga. Again, getting into more of the uh, computer type uh, gaming world, but then things would come back with a blast in 1985. Nintendo shows up at the CES and debuts the Nintendo Advanced Video System, which would later become the Nintendo NES. It's a little bit of a turnaround there from 1984 Mm -hmm. to 85. Mm -hmm. And another thing that I read while I was prepping for this article that I didn't actually know was that Nintendo, the, the NES was actually planned to be released in partnership with Atari in the United States. Nintendo was actually planning on licensing the hardware to Atari and then Atari would release it under their umbrella in as the the next version of the video game system. Mm. And what held up the deal, this was actually back in like 1983, early 1984, when these licensing deals were being worked out. And what held it up was the fact that Atari really wanted to be able to launch it with Donkey Kong. And Mm -hmm. Nintendo had licensed Donkey Kong to ColecoVision. So Coleco had basically the rights to the home version of Donkey Kong. And that led Atari to keep delaying the deal and pushing it off and trying to keep renegotiating it. Well, in the meantime, the market collapses. Atari essentially goes belly up. And that left Nintendo sort of like, well, uh, I guess we'll just do this on our own. (laughs) And I guess that turned out pretty well. Yeah, it did. That's that's really cool. Um, I like that. So I'd never heard that that story before. I so I I, I hope it's true. I don't know. I, I've I've really only seen the one source for it, so maybe it's other bullshit. But uh, <laughs> I'm gonna just go ahead and and like to think it's true. It might be. I, I've read a not just console wars. I I can't remember if it's console wars or there's another game. There's another book uh, simply titled uh, what is it called? I'm looking at my list over there. It's called Super Mario, and then there's a subtitle. It's a blue book. It's very good. 
that book does talk about it's too far away on my shelf for me to read the subtitle um and i wish i had some sort of magical space box computer system where i could quickly search the name of this uh of this <laughs> this book right in front of my face but i don't that'll never be a thing uh, it'll never be a thing unless it's at ces it's not a thing that's right um so it, it but it ta- it did talk about uh a little bit about nintendo um coming into america and how the crash, uh, when the crash happened, all other video game manufacturers that still existed, because a lot of people have to remember that the crash was primarily a, a North American thing. Mm-hmm. Um, consoles weren't really huge necessarily. It, consoles in general weren't really necessarily huge in, in Europe, um, uh, like the Amiga that you were talking about, um, ZX Spectrum, those sorts of things were uh, bigger in, in Europe. So they didn't really feel the crash. The fact that um, it's called the ZX. Yeah, exactly. Alone <laughs> tells you that it was in Europe. <laughs> That's absolutely true. Um, and so all of those, uh, so so really it, it would only affect North America and none of the other video game manufacturers wanted to go to North America because of the crash. They were sort of afraid of it. And, and Nintendo was the one company that kind of wanted to because they knew that they just felt there was still an appetite for it and they felt they could do it. And of course, everybody knows the story of Rob the Robot and how it was actually sold as a toy, not a video game system so that it could actually get into stores because manufacturers didn't want to touch it. So it was because of the crash that I think that Nintendo was able to make things happen. Yeah. And the NES deck itself, the way the reason it looks so much different from the Famicom is that Nintendo wanted it. They patterned it after a VCR Mm -hmm. because they wanted it to look like a a, something that would fit into a home entertainment tray. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So the next the next year that I have after 1985 is 1988, and that was the introduction of Tetris. And Tetris came to the, the U.S., and one year later then, after it being announced and shown off in, in 1988 CES, that led to the deal with Nintendo and it being bundled with the Game Boy upon the Game Boy's launch a year later in 1989, and it becoming basically uh, really a part of the Game Boy experience. I know that when I... The first time I ever played a Game Boy, I never, I didn't own one until later on, but I did borrow a friend's for our holiday vacation in 1989, the Christmas of 89. We had family that would go down and uh, that lived in Florida or, or Texas. They sort of alternated between Florida and Texas, getting the hell away from the Wisconsin winters. A lot of retired <laughs> folks go south for the winter, uh, like they they basically grow wings and fly south with all of the geese but <laughs> so we did a road trip down to visit my my grandparents down in Florida and the only thing i remember about that entire road trip is playing tetris on the game boy the entire 27 hour drive there <laughs> and back and sitting next to the pool in the the old folk development where it's like 65 degrees so i'm the only person at the pool and of course instead of actually doing anything with the pool i'm playing tetris the entire time it was the only (laughs) game i had the only game that my buddy loaned me and i swear to god i played it for like a week straight wait so he loaned you the game boy but he said you can only have one game because I want to keep the other games for X reason. I think he only had Tetris because it uh, was gotcha. it was it, the Game Boy was very new. This was it, the Game Boy came out in eighty nine, and this was like the Christmas of eighty nine. So I think it was the only game that he had. Um, and maybe my memory is skewed, and it was just the only game I played. But I think it was the only <laughs> thing I had access to. 
But, yeah, because so, if you would have had something like the Mortal Kombat port at that time, I mean, you would have definitely played that instead because yeah. it's aces. Yeah, 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 for <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's a terrible port, by the way. Anybody listening, don't spend any money on it. It's awful. <laughs> However, if you had it in 1989, two years before true, Mortal Kombat, that would probably, I guess that's four years before Mortal Kombat. Yeah, yeah that would have been good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You'd probably make some money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So flipping the calendar a couple of times again, we go from 1988 to 1990. And this is a story that I really sort of, this this one really amuses me. So in 1990, Sega Genesis had been released in the U.S. a year earlier. It came out in 89. And Sega basically had like a, a very similar licensing sort of structure that Nintendo had, where you had to by the ability to create your game cart and have it licensed by Sega. Sega would produce the cart for you um, and you would pay a a royalty to Sega. So it was sort of like they were planning on making most of their money through licensing soft third-party software. Um, Well, throughout 1990, a little game company goes to work and says, you know, that Tengen really had the a great idea. We're just going to try and reverse engineer this uh, Sega Genesis cart and see what happens. That little company was Electronic Arts. And the night before CES, Trip Hawkins, the head of EA, goes to the head of Sega at CES and says, hey, so we just reverse engineered your uh, your Sega Genesis and we can make our own carts now. And apparently up until this point, Sega had not come to an agreement with EA on EA publishing games for the Sega Genesis. I think it had to do with the licensing cost. EA was balking at the price that Sega was charging. So EA comes to them the night before CES and says, so if you don't like our, the, the price that we're going to offer you, we'll just go ahead and set up our own licensing shop and basically create our own Sega Genesis and uh, (laughs) you'll get nothing and you'll basically have a clone in the market. And so Sega thinks, God, that that wouldn't be very good. I guess maybe we should play nice. And <laughs> then the very next day, uh, EA announced support for the Sega Genesis at CES. And looking back at the Sega Genesis, at least my Sega Genesis experience, I played a ton of Sega Genesis. I was definitely a Genesis kid. I played a ton of EA games on the Genesis. Mm -hmm. And I really identify the Genesis primarily with EA, whether it was obviously Genesis is known sort of as the sports game system out of the Genesis and the super Nintendo rightly or wrongly. I mean, most of them were published for both, but I think the sports fans sort of gravitated toward the Genesis for whatever reason. And then road rash and Mm -hmm. Buck Rogers and just a lot of games that are, tied tethered to the genesis era for me are ea games yeah. and it, and it almost didn't happen had ea not been a bunch of pirates <laughs> good pirates are always good my how the world has changed in 30 years <laughs> i know if only ea were trying to get money from people in weird ways right and, and on yeah yeah oh well yeah yesterday's <laughs> pirate is today's greedy corporate bastard <laughs> So 1990 turns over to 1991, and a little company from Japan decides, hey, we want to get in on this uh, 16-bit action too. 
And at CES 1991, Nintendo announces a little system called the Super Nintendo. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever play? Did you ever hear of that system? Did you ever play? That I've heard system? of it. You know, I've yeah. heard of it. Uh, I remember uh, getting a getting it for Christmas, and uh, one of my most vivid memories is playing Donkey Kong Country um, mm. endlessly. Uh, in fact, my first one of my first probably real video first video game accomplishments is one hundred and one percenting Donkey Kong Country. Uh, when I got that, and I remember staying up, um, it was New Year's Eve, you know, and I was playing it, and uh, and I just, I remember it, it, I was at the age when staying up late was still kind of a big deal, mm-hmm. and also um, New Year's Eve was kind of a big deal, and I remember the clock striking 12, and I was playing the game, and I just yelled really loud, Happy New Year, and then I just kept playing it, <laughs> and, and I, I didn't even, it didn't even, I didn't hate it, so... That is either that is probably one of my earliest uh, video game accomplishments, one hundred one percenting Donkey Kong Country, and then also beating uh, Legend of Zelda: Link's Awakening on the Game Boy without dying once. In fact, Ooh. I beat uh, Legend of Zelda: Link's Awakening without dying, and this was at a time when I was sending letters to Nintendo Power often. So I was always asking for help and questions and sending letters in, and I sent them a letter just to tell them how happy I was that I got that I beat uh, Link's Awakening without dying. And they sent me a letter back, as they always do. They were always really good about sending letters back to kids. But it was basically just this letter of congratulations and how cool that is and everything. And, man, I wish I still had that letter because I would frame it and hang it in my office for sure. No kidding. That's awesome. The announcement of of Super Nintendo in 1991, it actually, at CES, it had come out. The the Super Famicom had been released in Japan two months before that, actually. Um, So the, the, the tech wasn't new. But it was the the American announcement, and actually that was when they coined the Super Nintendo name as well. Before that, it it also had a code name, not as cool as Video System X, but pretty decent. It was the NES SFX. So it's kind of interesting that the like Super FX name um, mm-hmm. that became the the, the chip right uh, was sort of attached to it before the the Super Nintendo was uh, even released. That's really cool. Yeah, I didn't know that. So that was the that was the winter CES in January of ninety one. In the summer CES of nineteen ninety one, Sony announced a little thing called the PlayStation. Hmm. I guess I didn't realize that the Sony Nintendo PlayStation was actually announced the same year as the Super Nintendo. Hmm. Oh yeah, I guess I, you're right. I thought that there was a you know that it was a much not much, but at least a couple of years later that that, that happened. I never put it together that it was the same year. Hmm. So moving forward now from 91 to 1993, and perhaps the greatest console reveal of all time for any CES show. I mean, we've had the Atari 2600, a little fly-by-night thing, no no big deal. The Mattel in television and nothing. Vectrex, yeah, cool, it's a box, it's got a screen, who cares? The Nintendo Entertainment System, eh, revitalized the market, a lot of great games, people collect for it, blah, blah, blah. But 1993, Trip Hawkins in the news again. Now he's done pirating Sega Genesis stuff, and instead, he's releasing the 3DO. <laughs> how 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 did he release it? You built this up. What's what was the the event? What what did he do? Did he bring tigers onto the stage? He, probably. 
that was all the story I had other than the fact that in researching this, I discovered what the 3DO name means, which I never knew. Do you know? 3D has got to be a 3D objects. No. 3D uh, octogenarian. No, that's, that's, you're getting close. Closer. You're not, you're not. not 3D old person. No, no, that, that's me. That's me. (laughs) I don't know. I, I give up. I always thought it had something to do with 3D. It has mm-hmm. nothing to do with 3D. Liar. In fact, what it means is Trip decided that audio, video, this is the next thing. It's the 3DO. <laughs> it's the next DO. God, that's way dumber than just saying it's 3D objects or something. <laughs> Terrible idea. It's almost as bad of an idea as releasing a $700 video game console in 1993. Yeah, that's, or even a $700 video game, $700 video game console in whenever the PS3 was released, because it was a, <laughs> it was a bad idea then too. Yeah. 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 Huh. yeah. yeah. Well, not, not, interesting. Not great. not great. I can't, I can't imagine that it's not some sort of backronym type of thing where even though he justified it by saying audio, video, 3D, uh, the 3D still had to be a marketing thing that he knew about. I mean, Trip Hopkins. Trip Hop- Hawkins. He has the name Trip Hawkins. He is a marketing guru. That's right. His name for Christ. Yeah. Sake, you know? And he, if you if you name your kid Trip, that he's like destined to be a marketer, I think. or an asshole. Is one or the other. Yeah. Like you don't. Yeah. Have, there's nobody named Trip that's like that's a good guy. Yeah. You know. He's you know sailing on his sailboat wearing his blukers. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So after the three, after the summer of 3DO in 1993, 1994, and we get the first tease of Project Saturn from Sega. It was subtly revealed in a marketing loop video alongside a bunch of Genesis and Sega CD games and just sort of flew under the radar as, oh, and here's a game for Project Saturn. On to the next game. And... One of my favorite stories from CES history is also at the 1994 CES. Sega had their R&D guys there because CES is really, there's some marketing that happens, but a lot of it, it's really a tech show. It's a tech trade show. And so a lot of, uh, a lot of the folks that are there are engineers, they're, in, they're R&D guys, and they're there to talk the tech, uh, you know, to vendors and tell them how tech works and things like that. Well, Two of the heads of Sega of America's R&D, Joe Miller and Marty Franz, at one night in, in a hotel at CES, they developed the 32X on a piece of hotel scratch paper. <laughs> so the moral of this story is if you want your game device to succeed, maybe don't just spend one night thinking it through in a drunken haze in a hotel room, scratching something out on a piece of paper. <laughs> that's a good moral <laughs> i mean you could you could basically go back and point to that moment as the moment that killed sega as a video game hardware manufacturer mm-hmm. because the development of the 32x really drove a wedge between sega of america who is all in on the sega genesis still mm-hmm. and sega of japan who was ready to move on to the saturn and because the Saturn really took off in Japan and it just, they rushed it to market in one of the greatest 
launch flops in video game history in the United States because Sega of America was really not behind it. They wanted to do the 32X. They were still devoted to Genesis, and that really killed a lot of consumer loyalty. Uh, I remember having a Genesis and a Sega CD back when it was actually like at market, and I just showed up at uh, Babbage's one day, which is where I got all my video games, and there was a, gen- a Saturn, just a pile of Saturns sitting there in the <laughs> entryway. And they were like, yeah, we don't know. These just showed up this morning, and uh, we don't have any games to sell you because Sega didn't. <laughs> oh, man. Sega of America didn't even tell their third-party developers that they were going to do this this stealth drop for the Saturn. They just announced it one day, and then bam, it was in it was in stores the next day. Uh, it That's so crazy. The launch of it cratered, and that just I mean, PlayStation took off, and Sega never really recovered. They tried to get back with with the Dreamcast, but by then they'd lost so much consumer confidence that, despite the fact that the Dreamcast was a fantastic system, it just never had a chance. And it all goes back to that hotel scratch paper. <laughs> So be careful what you let your R&D guys do in the uh, drunken hours of the night at CES this week. Engineers should not have paper. No. That's the rule. That's that's the rule. No no paper and no marketing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Now that we've solved some engineering uh, HR problems, on to 1995. And this, like the 32X, signals the really the death knell for video game importance on ces 1995 this isn't a ces news but this is when the electronic entertainment expo e3 debuts and becomes the largest gaming convention and gaming um, mecca of announcements uh in in the united states and from there on really the focus on ces as a place for video game announcements really starts to dwindle and there's really only two major announcements after 1995 that happen uh, with regards to video games in 1996 apple unveils the pippin which you know counts as major sure huge huge Mm -hmm. well done well done Another another big success from 1996 that just slightly outdid the Apple Pippin was the announcement of DVDs. So, uh, you know, one one of them won, one of them mm-hmm. didn't. Mm-hmm. 1998, the HDTV is introduced. And then in 2001, Bill Gates and The Rock, two people who could not be more different, <laughs> introduce the Xbox. And then uh, that's really sort of the swan song for video games at CES, sadly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been... Uh, you still see like Mad Cats announcing that they're going to be at this year's show here uh, this week. But uh, for the by and large, CES has become more about televisions. It's when all of the big uh, TV producers release their, their upcoming television sets for the year and um, the, the 3d TV and 4k TV and all of that was introduced at CES. Uh, some phones are introduced at CES and it's actually becoming more of a, uh, an auto show actually with the 
coming prevalence and and growing interest in smart cars. Uh, a lot of Internet of Things and um, you know five G type stuff is expected to to happen at, at this year's twenty eighteen CES. But I think we can obviously know that nothing's going to really come in the gaming world uh, in terms of announcements this year, uh, other than. I did see a announcement that there was a company that's starting to make or is going to be announcing at CES that they're doing Sega Saturn and Sega Dreamcast peripherals. They're going to be doing like uh, they actually signed a deal with Sega to produce them. They're going to be controllers and arcade sticks and stuff to factory OEM spec, except they're all going to be uh, USB and, and Bluetooth compatible, sort of like the 8-bit dough controllers except they're uh, going to be for the Sega systems, which will be kind of nice having a pseudo first-party wireless solution for the, the Genesis and Saturn and uh, Dreamcast. That'll be interesting to see what actually comes of that announcement. Yeah, I've actually I heard about that, and I'm, I would be interested to see if it goes a step further than peripherals and they actually start developing some of the, the uh, tech to actually read games, because I know as... as you know, uh, lasers and, and disc-based consoles can't last forever, so it would be nice to have a way to play them without having to sacrifice your original hardware. So maybe that'll be a, a next step, a, a next step eventuality. Especially if it could do, you know, HDMI out and you don't have to mm-hmm. mod, mod a system and, and do all of that stuff. That'd be kind of nice, too, especially if it did have the, you know, the Sega seal of approval. Exactly, yeah. That's awesome. I, I for one... Uh, and for many listening to this podcast, appreciate this uh, this summary. This was really, really interesting and informative, and I had no idea all this crazy stuff about CES. So, thank you, thank you, Scott, for for doing that for us. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, get to get to dust off my my history degree and talk a little bit about uh, electronic history. I love it. I love it, and I hope I hope uh, you listeners loved it as well and love us love us enough to. Come back next time, and the way you'll know when to come back, other than the fact that we do release uh, episodes pretty consistently every other Monday, um, you can also follow us if you wish to know uh, when things are going to be released. and And you can find um, you can find Scott over at VG Collectaholic on Twitter. You can also find him at Facebook's uh, forward slash VG Collectaholic or vgcollectaholic.com, though there's nothing really on that website, except a very handsome photo of you holding a copy of No Man's Sky, which I think is the most welcoming image ever (laughs) on a website. (laughs) You know what you're getting into, right? Uh You're getting into something that is probably going to be disappointing because there's Uh not going to be a whole lot of of valuable, relevant content there. But that's actually actually my Tinder profile picture as well, and uh, it goes about as well as the video vgcollectaholic.com viewership. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but the one time it works, man, you found someone. Nailed you found it. the right person, right? Yep, yep. Uh, you can find me at Twitter and uh, at, at CalebJRoss.com. I was going to say and online at CalebJRoss.com, but Twitter kind of is online. So I'm on the interwebs. CalebJRoss.com. You can also find our podcast, which is probably the most important thing to really talk about, on Twitter at at MOU podcast uh, or mastersofunlocking.com on those interwebs aforementioned and also at facebook.com forward slash masters of unlocking. And I believe, isn't there an Instagram profile? There now? is. There is now an Instagram profile. We uh, are masters of unlocking on, on Instagram. Nice. And please subscribe uh, and, and review. Subscribe 
you can subscribe. If you go to mastersofunlocking.com, that'll give you all the links to subscribe. But um, all of your normal places that you would expect, Apple included, Stitcher, that sort of stuff, it's all there. Um, but also, uh, please leave a review. That would be very, very helpful if you could leave a review. And if you're still listening to this podcast, which ran a little bit longer than most of our podcasts, obviously you're a fan. So uh, it makes sense that you would review it and leave it a positive review on iTunes or any of the other places that you like to uh, listen. So thank you so much uh, for listening, and uh, we will listen uh, talk with you next time. I don't, I'm not very good at, 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 at <laughs> outros, so we'll leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> Enjoy CES, people.